Hello, this is Heartstock, and I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Today, we have a great guest lined up, Steve Brolf. In just a moment, he's going to be with us. But I would also like to remind you, you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. We're always happy to hear from you and carry on the conversations about using business as a force for good. Today, as I mentioned, Steve Grolf is our guest, and um, Steve has a very uh, interesting book that we're going to talk about uh, that he published, and Steve is all about regenerative farming. So in just a moment, Steve is going to be with us and tell us about his book and one of my favorite subjects, combined with my other most favorite subject, farming hemp. <laughs> this is Heartstock. Thanks for listening. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Today we're speaking with Steve Grolf of Cedar Meadow Farms. Hi, Steve. Well, good morning, Carol. Thanks for having me on today. Mm, Thank you. Can you give our listeners a little introduction as to what it is that you do at Cedar Meadow Farm and um, a little bit about your book, Future Proof Farm? So I'm a third-generation farmer from southeastern Pennsylvania, uh, Lancaster County to be more specific, and I've been growing various crops, but my main crops are heirloom tomatoes, uh, pumpkins, and squash, and I sell those to Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, and other local distributors, but I also grow CBD and fiber hemp, and I know you have an interest in that. Uh, so that's that's pretty cool. Uh, but I got to tell you, everything I do in the farm is filtered through the goal of improving the soil and subsequently the nutrient density of the food I produce, including a better CBD product. And I uh, recently uh, wrote a book called The Future Proof Farm, Changing Mindsets in a Changing World. And this is not a book on how to farm. But it's a book that describes kind of where my head has been in the last 20 years or so in not only on the farm here, but I do a lot of speaking and consulting, been around the world in 13 countries and all over the U.S. and Canada. And I share a lot of stories there of farmers who are doing similar things or things that I aspire to do, all having to do with creating a better planet and being a steward of what we have here uh, with the soil and so forth and uh, to have a better food product that's more healthy, more nutritious and so forth. So that's kind of in a nutshell what the book is all about. And it's written to to farmers to try to inspire them to think differently in how they grow uh, their food and also to consumers to let consumers know there actually is some farmers who really do care about how food is produced. And I would say maybe the third thing is for the supply chain, the food distributors and so forth. A lot of times that's a bottleneck for some of these ideas. 
and to try to get them on board as well. So um, that's a, you know, a little bit of what the focus of the book is. And I find this just amazing. My my undergrad degree was in agriculture, so okay. um, I can I can attest to the fact that um, this is quite the paradigm shift because usually the focus is on the end goal, production, profits, and it's just amazing to me that um, by focusing, this is just kind of you know a reflection on my part, you know, business focusing on benefit versus. Um, profits, uh, farming focusing on soil rather than profits. And by doing so, could you say it's more profitable to focus on the soil than focusing on profits? Well, you still have to keep profits in mind or I won't be in business. Um, sure. But I have a long-term view. And I tell the people when I'm speaking whoever it may be, that if you're interested in, in this type of a system, you have to move from an annual perspective to at least 10 years, maybe more, because it's a learning curve to be able to learn to do some of these techniques or to maybe I should say relearn some of those things that our grandparents knew. Now, not everything our grandparents did, in my case, I'm a third generation farmer, so I can say that literally, not everything they did was good, and that's where uh, I've come to try to keep the soil on the farm. And so so just looking at that, having a long-term view then makes your profitability, uh, I like to say it, uh, your, your fields and your farm is more resilient if you try to mimic nature, more resilient to the challenges, which typically in agriculture is too wet or too dry. Uh, and then also, you know, combating disease and insects and so forth. We can do that in a natural way, more natural way to limit the cost of inputs. And that's a, that's a cost savings, which can then lead to profitability. So I would just say that done right, uh, this would be more profitable, but you're not looking at profit just for the sake of profit for that year. And that's the key distinction. And I think that's what you're getting at in uh, in your comment there. Indeed. Yep. And with um, sustainable business, green business, I mean, fill in the blank, there's many descriptors. Studies yeah. have been done to show that by having this long view, so to speak, um, in the end, it is more profitable. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that that applies to egg. Uh, you know, just as much as it does to making shoes or, you know, other other mm-hmm. products. Um, so when when did the light bulb come on for you? Um, <laughs> you were raised doing it a certain way, and at some point you made a switch. What what brought that on? Yeah, there's a there's a key. I might say epiphany in a way. It did kind of occur over a little little period of time, but. I can identify the reason why I shifted uh, my attention to this whole paradigm. Uh, So before I even graduated from high school in the early 80s, uh, working here on the farm, I mean, I grew up, uh, just so you understand, I grew up always wanting to be a farmer. So that that wasn't even a, uh, that that was kind of a given, if you will. So one of the things that occurred uh, some years more than others 
where we had ditches in our fields because we have sloping fields. We had ditches in our fields that we actually had to close up in order to cross the ditches to harvest our crops. And at that time, that was mainly an inconvenience. It was, I had to get the tractor and the scraper blade out and a loader and push up the soil to close these ditches so I could harvest my corn. And I thought, how can we eliminate this? Um, and then I heard about a concept called no-till or short for no-tillage or meaning not plowing the soil or cultivating the soil. And it's, you know, it's, that made sense to me that if I don't till the soil, it will stay in place. And again, my whole objective was to eliminate these ditches. It had nothing to do with soil health or any, or even protecting the water. I got to admit, I didn't really care about anything downstream at that time. I have since learned to really care about whatever leaves my farm. But, but the motivation was ditches in my field. I had no idea that by reducing tillage, and then we'll talk about cover crops later on to keep the soil protected and to keep it covered. I had no idea it would lead me to what I'm doing today. So what stimulated me to go down this path, actually a whole bunch of other things that were beneficial came to be. Now, I got to tell you, I had to convince my dad to be able to do this new concept because back in the day, 40 years ago, it was not popular. Not many people were doing it. There was no little to no information out there. So we were kind of on our own. Uh, today, if a farmer wants to make the transition, there's, you know, you could spend weeks on YouTube watching videos of good, good farmers doing what they do. And there's plenty of information out there now. But that was kind of my epiphany over, over some time that caused me, eventually led me to where I'm at today. So I'm having a hard time connecting the dots. How, mm-hmm. So since you didn't have to till, um, mm-hmm. the ditches no longer mattered, but then how did you realize that this was actually better in, in some ways? And, and how yeah. is it really better? So, yeah. yeah, so the soil stayed in place when we had heavy rains that no longer made ditches. Mm-hmm. And not only that, the water infiltrated better into my fields. Uh-huh. So there wasn't as much runoff. Yep. And so I fixed that problem. But what I didn't realize, and this is what I maybe should have better explained, was the benefits of keeping the soil in place are easily identified. But by having and, and adding cover crops later on, by growing cover crops that actually are legumes that can take nitrogen out of the air and put it in the soil, so I wouldn't have to buy as much fertilizer. By creating a, an environment where there's living roots in the soil now year-round uh, compared to just a couple months out of the year, uh, and keeping the earthworms happy, if you will, allowing the earthworms to do their job of digging uh, into the soil and making their channels, so that water could infiltrate, so they could process the crop residues that I had left on top of the soil and turn them back into fertilizer, if you will, or nutrients for a sequential crop. I was able then to start reducing my inputs like fertilizers and like pesticides and so forth. That's some of the details 
that I learned. And when I started seeing it happen, then I started asking questions to universities and so forth. I've done a lot of research here in my farm with universities and the Rodell Institute and the USDA. And I started to learn uh, how to manage and how to do get better at this, how to understand better how the soil is designed to function. And that's a key thing. And if there are any farmers are listening, I really would challenge you to think about how is the soil designed to function? Because we all know that when you go in a woods or in an undisturbed area, the soil is nice and tilty. The water infiltrates well. So our challenge in, in, as farmers are how can we mimic nature as much as possible to achieve some of these results? And in the end, it's going to make us not only better farmers and more cost-effective in what we do, but kind of the benefit uh, the, the, is that we'll actually get a healthier food product, and that's good for anyone who eats those products coming all fields managed that way. Who have been your greatest influences on this journey? Um, since you were a pioneer, a soil, a dirt pioneer, how do you like that? <laughs> who did you learn from? And um, were you just kind of going it alone at the beginning? Yeah, um, yeah it was a lonely road uh, for a while. There were some, a few local farmers around here, but through the 80s, I was pretty much Someone called me an island of sustainability back in those, those that decade, and and I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so it was kind of traveling alone, and then word started getting out what I was doing, and I was invited to speak at a at a local conference. I never set out to be a speaker, but I kind of enjoyed it, and I guess you'd say I have a natural talent for that. And then people heard me speak, and then they asked me to speak elsewhere, and that just uh, snowballed, if you will. And before I know it, I was traveling the country and up to Canada, and pretty soon I got invitations for you know other other countries and so forth. But I, I think I, I do really appreciate a lot of the uh, individuals that I have met over the years. That it there is not one specific person that really was a huge influence on me because I really like to be a part of a collective group of learners, people who are curious and people who are learning. And so even to this day, I'm a part of several networks of um, mainly fellow farmers just trying to share our experiences and some of our challenges, by the way, and figure out how to do things better. So you know, over the past 20 years or so, I've been influenced and I've also been an influencer in those circles. And I really enjoy sharing my story with those who you want to listen and want to learn. And one of the things that I encourage everyone that the best thing is to identify your objectives in what you're trying to do with growing food in a more regenerative way. And then try to team up with someone who is doing it, who is accomplishing those objectives. One of the things I've noticed is now it's kind of mainstream almost. And I appreciate all the efforts out there. But, you know, some people are, you know, 
talking more theoretical and they, they don't understand reality. So I like to lean on the people who are actually doing what I want to achieve, what I want to do. And that's what I encourage others to do. So the influencers are, are many and I, and I hate to single out, you know, just one or two because I, I, I would, my list would be too long. Yeah. You mentioned the Rodell Institute doing great, incredible work. And mm-hmm. I know that they're they're located there in Pennsylvania. So yep. we're going to take our uh, midway point break here. We'll be right back with Steve Grohl. This is Heartstock. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Today, our guest, we're speaking with Steve Grolf. Hi, Steve, again. Hey, Carol. It's been great uh, chatting with you. You know, you can help us understand. There's uh, some crossover and confusion, I, w- I would imagine, between regenerative and organic. Um, mm-hmm. Help us kind of parse this out, you know, how are they connected? And uh, what is your experience of the these two concepts on your own farm and your own work? It's a great question, because as you stated, whenever there's descriptive terms, you have to know what's behind them. And even the word organic, uh, there's a lot of misconceptions of what it actually is. Same could be said for regenerative you could use the word sustainable, and then there's lots of other adjectives that we can use for types of farming. But since people are mostly familiar with the general concept of organic, I'll start with that. So I am not an organic farmer, but I really do appreciate what the organic community has brought in growing food. So I want to make sure I say right up front, that organic agriculture is certainly a great way to grow food. I would also say that there are some aspects of organic agriculture that could maybe be improved. And of course, one of the things for me is the use of tillage. Uh, Most people think organic is is natural, and I would argue that tillage uh, in and of itself is not natural. We don't see tillage in nature. And when you till the soil, the soil has carbon in it, which is a good thing. But when you till the soil, it stirs the soil up, it turns it over, and releases the carbon as CO2. We're familiar with CO2. Uh, That's a negative aspect. Um, And so it also can subject your soil to the potential for erosion. So when we get into regenerative, as that term is as no, to, known today, regenerative is more looking at uh, maybe zooming out a little bit. It's a concept that you use diversity of plant species. You keep the, co- the soil covered as much as possible, I will say. You keep living roots in the soil. And again, I'm going to say as much as possible. And um, you diverse your crops as much as possible. 
And the fifth one is the inclusion of livestock or animals uh, on the farm. The first four are fairly straightforward. The fifth one with the animals can be a little more difficult. And I will say that that is something I do not do in this aspect of regenerative. Now, here in the last couple of years, there has been kind of another hybrid come out with regenerative organic, which is a good thing in that it helps some of the weak points of organic. And, and that's something that some of you may have heard of before. So in the, in the, in the context for me and in, in my journey, I guess I'll just say, first of all, too, organic is more of a kind of a roadmap on how to grow food, we'll say. It's like there is a list of rules. There's a list of things you can use and you can't use. A lot of people don't realize that you actually are allowed to use certain pesticides in organic production as long as those pesticides are formed out of natural products. And even some of those natural products that are approved for organic use do harm some beneficial insects. And that's, again, it is, it is, it is what it is. Um, uh, but, but that being said, uh, from my perspective, I don't want to be uh, tied into a set of rules, per se, because as we learn, as we learn how soils are designed to function, and as we learn how we can eliminate pests, uh, even without some of the organic uh, methods, we find that we're going to have healthier food. My objective is more of the healthy, nutritious food. And CBD, I might add, that I'm producing. Not so much how I got there, although I will say, in order to have healthy, nutritious food, you have to have a biologically active and a healthy soil. So, you know, you could write a book on this question, Carol, but <laughs> yes. uh, I, I hope I can be a little helpful there in, in explaining the difference. I do want to be clear, the organic concept is a, is a good concept. Uh, but I don't consider it to be the pinnacle of sustainability from where I'm coming from. What is a future-proof farm? My definition of a future-proof farm is a farm that is is going to be, number one, here in the future. It's going to be able to be profitable to pay its way. And uh, what I explain in my book is that the public – is more and more, I'll say, demanding nutritious food. And that's a, that's a good thing. Um, I would even say that uh, the COVID uh, issue has increased some awareness of trying to maybe be healthier, uh, to be able to hopefully naturally resist not just viruses, but other things as well. So as I see, and as I've worked for, and I've done consulting for some of the biggest names in food production, they're trying to promote that the way the food is grown is healthier food, number one. Number two, that it's protecting the planet, protecting the environment. So a future-proof farm is a farm or a farmer that understands this and understands they will have to be doing something on their farm that will be a clear indicator of, of having a healthy soil, sustainable practices, regenerative practices, you know, whatever you want uh, to use in that, those terms. 
even some of the commodity crops like corn and soybeans. I have seen the largest buyer in the world is ADM, Archer Daniel Midland. They have showed up at some of my meetings. And um, that's interesting to me because you, would, you wouldn't expect that. They're very conventionally minded and so forth. But I asked them afterwards, why did you come to a soil health meeting? And they said, we see that this is the future and we're trying to figure it out. Hmm. So the Future Proof Farm is a farm that's forward thinking, understanding where the future is going. And I, from my, I'm going to say from my perch, if you will, from my perspective of being involved in, you know, worldwide directional movements and so forth, I'm telling farmers, hey, guys and gals, you're going to have to maybe change here a little bit if you even want to be relevant or you may become obsolete. So. I encourage farmers to look for those aspects that they can start transitioning on their farm, and I help them to to go through that. So that's a lot about what my book is about. The book is an easy read. Again, it's not how to farm, and even a non-farmer would appreciate hearing some of the stories that I share in there, what is going on in agriculture today. And we've got maybe about three minutes left. I was hoping you could just touch upon how much carbon can we sequester in the soil? And I've heard folks say global warming could be completely and totally addressed just by changing the soil and how we farm. Mm -hmm. So on my farm, um, we can measure carbon sequestration because plants take in CO2. Uh, My organic matter, which is carbon, has tripled, gone from 2% to 6%. So you're right. Farms can do a lot. But what you don't hear a lot of is that it's not just CO2 capture and storage. It's also water transpiration. Uh, When we till up our soils, our soils dry out. They're warmer. I remember when I was a kid on a freshly tilled field on a hot day, I couldn't even walk across the field. Uh, By the way, I should say when I was a kid, I... I I went barefoot a lot, and I couldn't walk across the field because the soil was so hot on a freshly tilled field. Now, with having the soil covered, it actually stays cooler. We have more life within the soil. Uh, That's the one benefit, but as far as the climate goes, we're not radiating as much heat back into the atmosphere. And there actually is something to have in the soil covered that will also influence the climate. And that's a, that's a key factor that I, I want to bring up here in this conversation, that you're right, Carol, farmers can do a lot to be able to make our climate resilient again. And I would imagine all that heat in the soil is not good for the microbes that are helping to create that healthy soil. Yes, microbes are like us. They save the best in about 72 degrees. Uh, which is fascinating to know that. And so I want to treat my microbes like I treat myself. And that's to try to keep the soil covered and protected uh, for weather extremes. So how can folks find you and or your book? Very simple, cedarmeadow.farm. That's cedarmeadow.farm. That's my CBD website, but you can get my book off of that. And a lot of information, a lot of what I discussed today 
is in the frequently asked questions section of that website. So um, might be something to be interested in, but cedarmeadow.farm is uh, where you can look me up and um, buy my book. Thank you so much, Steve, for being a pioneer. I appreciate that. I know how hard it can be to buck, buck a system, for goodness sake. And uh, thanks for being our guest today. You're welcome, Carol. Thanks for all you're doing as well. Mm-hmm. This is Heartstock Radio. We shall see you next week. As always, peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. But on the other side, it didn't say.